It's now 8 o'clock in the morning in Great Britain, the time for one of the regular news broadcasts of the British Broadcasting Corporation. I'm not sure whether the 8 o'clock news in London has started at the moment, but let's switch over to London now and see whether the 8 o'clock news has begun. The coast of Normandy, in coordination with our great airborne landings. At points, our troops have advanced several miles inland, and tanks have been reported to be moving on the town of Caen, 10 miles from the coast, where fighting was reported earlier. When BBC reporter Frank Gillard came through from General Montgomery's headquarters, there was no report of the violent reaction that is to be expected when Field Marshal von Rundstedt concentrates his forces against our operational area. It's early yet to get any firm assessment of the general situation over on the French coast, but our reporter says there was an atmosphere of confidence at General Montgomery's headquarters, fully justified by the news flashed back from our troops so far. One of the things everyone wants to know about is how our airborne forces are faring. There's no hard news yet about their part, but at least it's known that the operation of landing them, the biggest airborne expedition in history, was most successful. Another satisfactory thing about this outstanding operation is that our losses in planes were very small, considerably below what was expected. The original landing took place in the bay that stretches from the Cherbourg area, the tip of Normandy, to Le Havre in the east and we seem to have achieved a certain amount of tactical surprise. It remains to be seen what the Germans have in store for our men. But meanwhile, as our troops and supporting arms and weapons go ashore, every hour improves our ability to meet whatever may come against us. Another correspondent at Supreme Headquarters says, all that can be said about our forces at the moment is that they are fighting strongly under a complete air umbrella that covers not only them, but the vast force of craft moving freely backward and forward across the channel. Communique number two from Supreme Headquarters at the end of D-Day said reports of operations so far show that our forces succeeded in their initial landings. Fighting continues. One glimpse of the fighting in which the British, American and Canadian and Allied forces are engaged comes from a correspondent with the Canadian landing forces. He says that in under three hours of fighting on the beaches, the Canadian force won its beachhead and pushed inland. The Canadian commander flashed this message to headquarters. Beachhead taken, well on the way to intermediate objectives. There was some stiff fighting in the streets of the little French coast town. The Canadians met considerable enemy fire on the beaches as they worked their way among numerous steel and wooden obstacles. But they got going strongly. They took some prisoners, mopped up from small pockets of a German coast defense unit. This correspondent says that Canadian and British airborne troops did a good job when they dropped and came in by gliders to capture several important bridges and hold them. German reports have spoken of fighting at various points from the tip of Normandy to the hinterland of Le Havre. They say that there's been heavy fighting around the main highway running through the Normandy Peninsula towards Cherbourg, and they report that our airborne troops have been in action south of Cherbourg. Our landing forces here heard the roar of Allied planes almost every hour of the day and night. And last night, another great force of Royal Air Force heavies was heard going out. But all we've had so far is the familiar Air Ministry formula. Royal Air Force heavy bombers were over enemy-occupied territory again last night. They followed up a great dusk-to-dawn offensive with thousands of bombers and fighters taking part in the greatest day in aerial history. Well over a thousand troop carrier planes, including gliders and tow planes, were used by the Allied Air Forces. The Royal Air Force not only played its part by providing an air umbrella, 
Some of our airmen actually landed on the beach themselves. The first beach squadron went ashore to pave the way for a steady flood of Royal Air Force personnel, who from now on will operate from the other side of the channel. These beach squadrons have the difficult job of bringing supplies to the spot. This is no easy matter. For instance, it takes 24 tons of oil and petrol to keep four spitfires in the air for only four or five sorties. Only a few hours after our first landing, bulldozers, bulldozers were already at work laying out a landing strip for our fighters. The sea armada of upwards of 4,000 ships, together with several thousand smaller crafts, was divided into two major task forces. One was under the command of the British Rear Admiral Sir Philip Byron of Cossack fame, and the other under the American Rear Admiral Alan Kirk. They were split up into assault groups, follow-up crafts, bombardment ships, and mine-sweeping facilities. Many famous British and American warships were there. They included the British battleships Warsite, Nelson, and Ramillies, and the cruisers Glasgow, Belfast, Enterprise, Mauritius, and Iran. Among the American battleships were the Nevada, Arkansas, and Texas. American naval losses so far have been given by President Roosevelt as two destroyers and one tank landing craft. He described the full operation as being up to schedule. He said that when he made his speech on the liberation of Rome on Monday night, he already knew that the Allied troops were in their boats for the Western Front offensive. The date was roughly fixed at the Iran conference last December, but the exact date depended on the vagaries of the weather in the English Channel. And in fact, the weather caused a delay of one day. Inside France, the German military authorities have clamped down on the people in some areas. Among other things, it's forbidden for more than three people to gather together in the streets and from dusk to dawn, the French are ordered to stay indoors. German troops have been ordered to shoot on sight if the new code of instructions is, dis is disobeyed. <coughs> the quizzing Laval has also threatened reprisals, German reprisals, for any who help the Allied army. Laval's so-called Minister for Public Order, Dalmar, has already called out his militia, and the Vichy Radio has warned the militiamen that stern measures will be taken against them if they try to desert their units. The voice of free France on Algiers radio has hailed D-Day as an unforgettable day of joy and hope for the liberation of France. Behind General de Gaulle, a French spokesman said, were the French armed forces, burning with the desire to fight in France. And inside France there was the army of the interior, the vanguard of the Allies in metropolitan France. It's revealed that General de Gaulle, now in Britain, conferred with General Eisenhower on the eve of D-Day. General Eisenhower told reporters we were in complete agreement on all military matters. Moscow Radio, in its service in English, has broadcast a recording of last night's speech by His Majesty King George VI. This Russian broadcast was followed by the British National Anthem. Now, here are some sidelights on the operation passed on by those who've been across the channel. First, Royal Air Force pilots who flew over the front yesterday at low level. They say we're doing very well. They saw our troops are moving forward from the beaches. Our balloons are up over the landing beaches, a precaution against low-level attack on our ships. The pilots saw our ships unloading supplies and say that by noon, tons of equipment, tanks, lorries, and armored cars had been moved off. All the pilots were impressed by the way the supplies were pouring in on the beaches and how quickly the material was being carried inland. The last thing we saw, one pilot said, was a steady flow of our ships coming back to these shores for another load. The whole business from the air seemed like a very disciplined and ordered advance. Next, 
Crews of the torpedo boats, some of the first witnesses of the landing. They said that the shore gunfire was less than in Sicily. One of the skippers of the little ship tells how as the huge Allied landing fleet moved towards the French coast, Allied bombers hammered the beaches furiously for three hours. Incendiaries were pouring down from the sky like rain, and our fighters swooped over the beaches, a powerful challenge to possible Luftwaffe opposition. From what I saw, says this eyewitness, the Nazis were scared to accept the challenge. The Germans, he adds, sent up star cells which lighted the whole beach. And the German batteries hurled shells across at our ships. But many of these guns were quickly silenced. The scene was like a nightmare of color, with light from the star shells and smoke from the bomb. The Germans tried to knock out our planes with rockets that spiraled up, leaving a trail like a Roman candle, and then burst into swirling streaks of colored light. This news bulletin comes to you from the BBC in London. Now, here's a roundup of other world news. Russia. American heavy bombers have struck from bases in Russia for the first time. Scores of fortresses, heavily escorted by Soviet and American fighters, bombed the German airport in the Romanian city of Galat, at the mouth of the Danube. All the bombers returned. More German land attacks north and northwest of the Romanian town of Yassi have been beaten back by the Russians. And the Russian long-range bombers have made a mass raid on targets in Yassi itself, as well as on the railway junction there. Italy. Marshal Stalin has sent this message to Mr. Churchill. I congratulate you on the great victory of the Anglo-American forces in the taking of Rome. It has been greeted in the Soviet Union with great satisfaction. Allied troops have crossed the Tiber at many places, and some units have pushed on several miles beyond the river. They've met only weak resistance. The Lieutenant General of Italy, Prince Umberto, is reported to have asked Marshal Badoglio, who has resigned, to form a new government to include political leaders now in liberated Rome. Marshal Badoglio's radio has broadcast a message from General Alexander telling all Italian patriots in occupied Italy, from now onwards, the German armies in Europe will be attacked from every side. The day for which you have waited has come at last. I appeal to all patriots to rise against the common enemy. Portugal. The Portuguese government has stopped all exports of Wolfram to Germany. The ban has actually been enforced since Monday. This has been disclosed by the American Under Secretary of State, Mr. Sertinius, who said, this action should help to shorten the war, for it will deprive the Germans of important quantities of this vital war material. Southwest Pacific. American troops are now within a mile and a half of Mokmer Aragorn, one of the three important airfields on Biak Island off Dutch New Guinea. China. Chongqing announces fierce fighting about 20 miles northeast of Changsha, the great communication center in Hunan province. The Japanese, strongly reinforced, have launched vigorous attacks along five separate routes. Siam. The capital, Bangkok, has been given its biggest raid of the war by Allied heavy bombers, which concentrated on the railway marshalling yards. United States. Washington discloses that the Soviet government has offered its cooperation in sending supplies to Allied prisoners of war in the Far East. The Russians have named a convenient Soviet Pacific port adjacent to Vladivostok, where the relief supplies already on Soviet territory may be picked up by Japanese ships. Columbia's news headquarters in New York once again. We've been listening to the BBC 8 o'clock news. It's 8 o'clock in the morning in Great Britain, about 12 minutes past 8 now, as a matter of fact. And the uh, British news broadcaster has completed the news 
on the invasion and was giving a roundup of other world news. We assume that you're up to date on that, and so now we have the air again back at Columbia's news headquarters. We have a dispatch from Reuters, which perhaps uh, you might be interested in. It hasn't been given out yet. It concerns General de Gaulle. It's a dispatch from the British news agency Reuters that we've received here at our news headquarters in New York. The Reuters correspondent Stanley Burt says that General de Gaulle visited General Eisenhower at the advanced command post on Sunday, two days before D-Day. And then the Reuters correspondent says he understands that the Supreme Allied Commander is confident that French resistance will operate effectively and prove of substantial military value to the campaign of the British, American, and Canadian liberating forces. This is Columbia's news headquarters in New York. Before we now interrupt and take a brief intermission at our news headquarters in our invasion coverage, I'd like to remind you all again that we are keeping the Columbia network open all night. We shall, of course, interrupt all programs to bring you any news of great importance as it comes in, and at regular intervals throughout the night, we shall give you the authentic news, the details of the invasion of Western Europe. This is Bob Trout speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. atmosphere of the LaSalle Hotel's new Pan-American room, the center of downtown Chicago, Columbia presents the music of Ralph Morrison, his saxophone, and his orchestra, with songs by lovely Chiquita and Ralph Morrison himself. now with the Gershwin melody, it's Maybe. Thank you. 
There's variety, and here it is, Latin American style, Tico Tico.
I'm just an old acquaintance Just someone that you used to know Once you couldn't be close enough to me Darling, recently I know you've made a new acquaintance I feel it in my heart somehow Never thought the day would come when I would say I'm just an old acquaintance now. Thank you. 
Columbia has brought you music by Ralph Morrison and his orchestra, with song stylings by the maestro himself, playing for you from the new Pan American room of the LaSalle Hotel in the center of downtown Chicago. This program, announced by Ken Nordine, has been a presentation to Columbia Chicago Studios in the Wrigley Building. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. the most beautiful girls in the world. Presents Vanny Strand and Dan playing his world famous music from Hollywood's most glamorous night spots, Earl Carroll's Theater Restaurant, right here in the heart of Hollywood. Largest theater restaurant, Earl Carroll's in the heart of Hollywood. And now the man who leads the band, Manny Strand. Thank you, Dick, and hello, everyone. Won't you join us transcontinentally as we get underway with Paradise?
Tran and the orchestra in a fine arrangement of Paradise. And out of our old carol microphone, Jimmy Nolan to sing, I'll Get By. Jimmy Nolan, and now it's always a pleasure to introduce the friendly man who leads the band, Manny Strand. Being at the halfway mark, ladies and gentlemen, I think it's very appropriate to give you Irving Berlin's famous Blue Sky.
Now the measures of a novelty rumba with Manny Strand and the orchestra, Raul Martinez to sing, Babaloo. Spring will be a little late this year. 
performance for the past quarter hour of the Columbia Network has sent your way the world-famous music of Manny Strand and band from Hollywood's most glamorous night spot, Earl Carroll's Theater Restaurant, located just across the street from Columbia Square, here in the heart of the film capital of the world, Hollywood, California. Don't ever forget, for the better buy, buy those bonds. Dick Cutting speaking, this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System, sends music your way. Music right now by Dale Jones and Company, playing from the world-famous Hollywood Palladium on Sunset Boulevard just across the way from Columbia Square in the very heart of the nation's film capital, Hollywood, California. All right, let's dance. First of all, it's lovely Marianne to sing Tess's Torch Song.
has the sore saw. Here's a wild sort of thing involving Marianne once again with Maestro Dell Jones and, as a matter of fact, the whole band. Yes, it's called Better Do It Now. <laughs>
Change of pace here as Dale Jones calls for the measures of the good old Dallas Blues.
Soul too soon. It's time to say so long. During the past few moments, you've been listening and dancing to music by Dale Jones and Company, playing from the Hollywood Palladium here on Sunset Boulevard, just across the way from Columbia Square in Hollywood, California. Songs tonight by Dale Jones himself and lovely Mary Ann. Joe Walters announcing for you, this is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>